Well, if people ask Ben if he's related to me, I'll just say this, that when he was working at Ember Hill with us and uh, finished preaching, people would come out and say, your grandson is sure a good preacher. And I'd say, yeah, I'm so good. <laughs> if, uh, if that uh, camp that I started hadn't done any more than to encourage uh, Ben and Caleb to preach the gospel, it would have been well worth whatever effort we put into it. But uh, I'm so thankful that uh, they have been what they've been and that others as well have gone forth to preach the gospel and encourage the work of the Lord in various places. Uh, I just recently taught a class on the book of Colossians and uh, the Apostle Paul made it clear that he had not been to Colossae but he had heard about them, and he loved them very dearly. And uh, he wrote this letter expressing his love and his prayers for them and his expectations and correcting some errors. Uh, I have not been here before, but I can assure you that my prayers have been with you. I've been very interested in the work from the very beginning. Uh, the church, of course, made a great investment in Ben and Emily and uh, Judah when they came here and have continued to support them. And I bring you the bring you greetings from the church at Ember Hills who have had a great interest in this work from its very beginning. Some of them have visited you and bring back reports to us of the joy they've had in being associated with you here in, in this meeting. So our prayers continue with you. And I just pray that God will bless you with growth internally in the faith as well as numerically. I'm going to tell you about a dream I had last Friday night. I, I dreamed that uh, somehow or other the emperor of Japan was here in this country. And there was a large, large crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And I got there just a little bit late, and I went down and sat down in the very back. And the master of ceremonies said, now our speaker tonight is Sewell Hall. <laughs> <laughs> Me? Uh, what can I talk about? But as I was going forward to the front, I thought, I'll preach about John 3, 16 and 17. And I guess that's because I had it in mind. That's what I was going to talk to you about this morning. But I suppose that if I had just one text that I would want to present to the emperor of Japan or to anyone else who had no knowledge at all of Jesus Christ, it would be this that we sometimes call the golden text of the Bible. I hope that you can actually quote it. I suspect that many of you can. But if you can't, I hope you'll turn to it and watch with us as we try to go through this text and see how significant is the message of this two, two verses. In verses 16 and 17 of John 3, which we read to us just a moment ago, there are three persons or groups of persons. 
in the first place, there's there's God. And uh, our brother who led the prayer, I think, in a special way, mentioned the qualities and characteristics of God. We could spend the whole time this morning talking about God and who he is and what his qualities are, but our time will not allow that. And I thought I would just read one verse, perhaps from 1 Timothy, the first chapter, and verse 17, where Paul is closing out that particular chapter. And he says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That magnifies God and brings to our attention some of the qualities that make him unique in all the universe. The creator, the one who made all things. But the second person, of course, that's involved is the son, Jesus Christ. There are many sons of God, some sons simply by creation, some sons by adoption, but Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father of God. And one who is begotten as a son has the same nature as the one who begat him. Uh, the, the, the son uh, or the, the begotten son of a bull is a bull. It has the nature of the father who begat it. And if Jesus is the begotten son of God, then this means he is God in nature and has the same divinity that God possesses. In the book of John chapter one, we're introduced to him and shown that he existed even before he came to earth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the marvelous thing is expressed in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I saw just this past week where someone had placed on Facebook a challenge that he had heard regarding God simply appearing. Why don't, doesn't he just show himself and settle the argument about whether there is a God or not? And someone had responded, well, if one came into the world, healed all sickness, walked on the water, raised the dead, what would you say about that? That's not just a man. That's one who has power and wisdom and knowledge and authority beyond anything that any human being has. And that was true of him who came in the flesh as the word who become flesh and who was seen and handled and heard by individuals who bore witness that has been revealed and has been recorded for us so that we have it now 
in this word. In fact, the very man who wrote those words had said that he had seen him and touched him and had all kinds of opportunities to know who and what he really was. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now the third person or group of persons that we want to talk about are the world. The word world is used in many different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to the creation, the material creation of the world. But that's not what's talked about here. This is talking about the humanity that exists in the world. And these are often spoken of as the world. And, and that's what God loved, the world. And what was the character of the world? Well, I'm going to turn to the first chapter of the book of Romans, and there we'll learn the character of the people that inhabited the earth. These were observed by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote down the character of the people all around him. And though this describes the first century, it actually describes the 21st century as well being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also <coughs> approve of those who practice them. Now, that's not unlike our generation, is it? Our generation is characterized by those things. And marvel of marvels, that's the world into which God sent his only begotten son. What would he do when he came into a world like this? Well, in the Old Testament, we have God actually, in a sense, coming, if not in person, through angels into such a world. And what was the result? Well, back in the book of Genesis, the 18th chapter, God appeared in the, with two angels to Abraham. And when Abraham wondered why God had come, verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know it. God came down to see the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not the only time. You look back at the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. Those were in the days of Noah. And God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, if God sent his only begotten son into the world, and he found it corrupt and evil, what would you expect? What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened to the world? Surely he would report to God the sin that he found on earth and destroy it. But marvel and marvels again. What you have in that text that we're studying this morning. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God was not willing that any should perish. And so in spite of the wickedness, in spite of the immorality, in spite of the unworthiness that Jesus found when he came into the world, he didn't come to destroy the world, but he came to save it. And the, the interesting thing is, not only to save it as God had saved Noah, a lot out of Sodom or Noah in the time of the flood, save their lives, but God wanted man to be so completely saved that he would live forever with God, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And where would that be? Not on earth, but with God. God wanted those wicked, evil, immoral, sinful, rebellious people not only to be saved from death, but to be saved with him, to live with him forever and forever in his home. Would you invite such people into your home? God does. And God was making the arrangement for this kind of person to live forever with him. Why? Why? And there's just one answer. And you know what that one answer is. I'll tell you a little story. My daughter, oldest daughter, when she was a little girl, about three, was always inquisitive. And one time on a Wednesday afternoon, I'd taken her down to the town, Westfield, New Jersey, not too far away. And we had gone to a place or two that interested her. And she wanted to go on down to what existed then as a five and dime store. Those things don't exist anymore. <laughs> but uh, she wanted to go down. And I said, no, honey, we can't do that. Why? Well, we've got to go on home. Why? It's getting late. Why? Well, it's, we've got to go to service tonight. Why? Well, we want to go and study the Bible. Why? Because we love God. Why? Because God loves us. Why? And then what do you say? <laughs> then, but then what do you say? Why does God love us? The only answer I can give is 1 John 4, verse 8. 
God is love. And, and the, the kind of love that God is, is not the kind of love that desires a lovable object. It's a love that reaches out to an unlovable object and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's the only explanation possible. God loved the world, the sinful world of which you and I are a part. But how could God sending his son into the world keep them from perishing, make them worthy of eternal life with God? Well, the answer is that God so loved the world. The, the ultimate love, love sacrifices. A love that won't sacrifice is no love at all as far as the Bible is concerned. And God so loved the world that he gave. It wasn't simply a matter of sending that son into the world to observe and determine what should be done. He gave that son into the hands of this wicked world and as it were, he said, do to him what you will. Do to him what you will. Why? Why would he do that? That's the only way man could be saved. The penalty for sin has always been death. In the garden, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll surely die. In the Mosaic dispensation, Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And in the new covenant, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And if man had to die for his own sin, there would be no hope of eternal life. It would be the end for him as far as relationship with God is concerned. Somebody had to pay the penalty. Somebody had to die in order to relieve man of the penalty that he would do to carry. And God sent his son into the world knowing in advance what would be done to it. God knew that when the son came into the world, he would not be received with joy, at least on a broad, wide basis. In fact, in advance, God saw that he would be a man rejected of God and oppressed, afflicted. That he would be despised by the world into which he was coming in order to save it. Not only that, but God could see even in advance the kind of treatment he would receive at the hands of these men. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And God knew that he would be cut off out of the land of the living. That's in verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Why then did he die? Why did God allow him to go to the cross? We sang about that in that beautiful song just a few moments ago. And the answer is, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that a tremendous gift that God has given? Giving his only begotten son, knowing that that's what was going to take place. And on the cross even, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who is it that shall be forgiven? Who is it that will receive the benefit? Whosoever. It makes no difference. It makes no difference what kind of background one has. Rich or poor, educated, uneducated, nationality. Nothing makes any difference. Whosoever. And that's a beautiful, beautiful word. There's a song we used to sing, Whosoever meaneth me. And isn't that wonderful? That there is no one that's shut out or barred from enjoying the benefit of the sacrifice of Christ. Even the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul, before his conversion, said after his conversion, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And in that very text, he says that if he could save the chief, he can save any of them. And that's correct. Except whosoever believeth in him. Believeth in him. Now what does that mean? We're sometimes served up such a mild, almost meaningless definition of belief. It's just something you can just do right now, easily. Believe he came into the world. Believe he uh, died for your sins. And that's all that's involved. Oh, my friend, there's so much more involved in this believing that, that's mentioned here in this particular passage. In the 12th chapter of the book of John, verses 42 and 43, we're told that many of the Pharisees, the rulers of the people, believed in Jesus. But they didn't confess him because of the fear of the Jews. Do you think they were saved? They believed. No. Jesus said, if any man will not confess me before me, I'll not confess before the Father. So they would not be accepted even though they believed because they never acted on their belief. In the book of James, the second chapter, we're told that the devils believe and tremble. It's not enough just, oh, oh, Felix trembled at the preaching, of it, but it didn't do him any good. He believed what was said, but he didn't act on it. And the latter, latter part of the book of James says that there are two kinds of faith or belief. Two words mean the same thing. There's dead belief and there's living belief. Dead belief doesn't act. 
That's what the demons had. Living faith acts. And when this passage says, whoever believes in him, it's suggesting the idea of trusting him, trusting him to lead us, trusting him to guide us, trusting him to tell us what is right for us to do, and trusting him enough in his promises to do what he tells us to do. That's what's involved. Believing in a doctor means more than just believing he has an office down the street somewhere. It's more than even calling in and asking for an appointment. And it's more than going in and seeing and getting his prescription. It's taking the prescription and avoiding the things he says to avoid and doing the exercises that he tells us to do. It's following him in his whole treatment of us. And that's what's involved in believing in Jesus Christ. It's following him. Paul said that the chief of sinners were saved. Jesus prayed for those who crucified him that they would miss, that they would be forgiven. But they were not forgiven if they remained in disobedience and rebellion against him. On the day of Pentecost, in the second chapter of the book of Acts, Peter actually preached to some of those whom he said, you, with the hands of, of wicked men, crucified him. You're guilty. You're the very ones against for whom he prayed. When they believed for this, they cried, what shall we do? Don't you think Peter would tell them to believe? The fact is they had already accepted the facts, but their belief needed to be put into practice, into action. And so Peter said, repent. That's the first 38, and that's the second chapter. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You crucified him. He prayed for you. Now, if you believe, they already believed in him to the point of believing what Peter had said about him. Now you change your attitude and be baptized. And that's not all. You get on down to verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And the rest of their lives were dedicated to him. And that's what it means to believe in Jesus. Not a perfect life, but a life that's dedicated to following him. And a life that will continually repent of any of the sins that crucified him. Of anything we've done that would displease the one who loved us so much that he died for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't send him into the world to condemn the world. That's what the world deserved. But rather he came that he might save the world. And that's you and that's me. And we determine whether his purpose is fulfilled by whether we truly believe on him with a living, active, undying faith. What a blessing to be with you this morning. I'm thankful to God that I have the privilege 
and I'll be looking forward to reporting to the brethren in Atlanta that I was with you today, and I thank God for the privilege. Amen. Amen. Amen.